Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. It seems to me that recently in the past 10-ish years, the themes of Disney movies and Pixar movies have gotten a lot heavier. I don't feel like 10 years ago I would have walked out of a Pixar movie feeling like an existential dread and just tears flowing down my face. When I was a teenager, I watched movies like The Lion King, and maybe there was some serious themes of loss of a father and maybe some disappointment and not knowing who he was, but it was nothing like the movie Inside Out, where it's talking about the combination of fear and sadness and joy and sorrow. Maybe I watched Beauty and the Beast and I realized that you had to look on the inside, was being taught about what it looks like for inter, inner, inward beauty, but it was nothing like the existential dread and sorrow and sadness I left the theaters with when I saw the movie Puss in Boots recently. Did anyone go see that movie? Thank you. So, personally, I did not want to go see that movie, but Tyler, my fiance, is an um, animated lover, not anime, but loves animated movies, and so we went to see the movie Puss in Boots, and let me tell y'all, I was in awe. Number one of the um, actual animatedness or the drawings of it, it's an absolutely stunning movie, but also I was in awe of the themes that they tackled. They tackled the fear of death, loss, anxiety, and ultimately, one of the things that really struck me was it culminated in this moment of a panic attack. So if you haven't seen this movie yet, you need to go see it. It is about the infamous Puss in Boots, which comes from the Shrek story, and in this movie, he has faced the reality of his eighth life has ended. And he is now facing the reality of his ninth life, meaning cats, you know, they only have nine of them. And in this, he meets this character who is kind of the bad guy. He is the death character. And he is depicted as a red-eyed, bounty-hunting wolf. And death is trying to chase him down and remove his last life from him. Death keeps telling him over and over, you're worthless, you're selfish, you've wasted the rest of your lives. And in this part of the movie, kind of at the climax, Puss in Boots finds himself in the lowest of lows. I mean, he has hit rock bottom. He's realizing that he has wasted so much of his life, that he has pursued selfishness. And in this lowest of lows, he has a panic attack. And in this moment, DreamWorks decides to depict this with a deranged um, therapy dog coming to lay his head on his lap. And number one, I think it's a really powerful picture for kids who experience panic attacks to see that this is normalized. And only in 2023 are you going to see a film where there's a therapy dog as one of the main characters. Absolutely amazing. But in this moment, I really saw Puss in Boots experience this lowest of lows. And I don't mean for us to think about the panic attack. I mean for us to think about this lowest of lows when we experience the weight of our sin. In this moment, Puss in Boots has this type of experience. He realizes that he is at his lowest. And tonight, we are going to be talking about 
this type of moment, the moment when we are overcome with sorrow and sin. And if you haven't had this moment in your life, my prayer for you tonight is that God would convict your heart and bring you to your knees so that you can see the weight of your sin and you can feel the full weight of his mercy and forgiveness. I am so thankful to be here tonight. It truly is a joy and an honor to get to unpack God's word with you. We're going to be in Psalm 130, which the band and the whole group of Oxano, y'all have just done such a great job of leading us into this text tonight. Um, I would be remiss to say that I'm so excited to be here to serve alongside one of my best friends in the world, Kara, and also just to welcome in our new college minister, Cole. Cole is a great friend of mine from Beeson, and when he was in the conversations about having... Um, Cole come to join us on staff. I was number one advocate, so we are super, super pumped that you're here. Y'all would be remiss if you leave tonight without meeting him. So if you have a copy of God's Word, which you all do, you've all opened it to 130, we are going to read that again so we can get our minds into the text as we unpack God's Word tonight. So let me read this passage for you again. It says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O God, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let me pray and bless our time together in God's word. God, you heard the cry of the psalmist when he wrote this, crying out to you, and God, I ask tonight that you would hear us in our lowest Lord, tonight for those who haven't had this moment, God, I pray that you would bring them to their knees in confession to confess you as Lord. And God, for those of us who need comfort from your word, who need conviction, we pray that you would bring it. I pray that you would allow all of my words to fall away and just for yours to remain. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So our psalm tonight comes out of a group of psalms called Songs of Ascent. And this is from the Psalms 120 to 134. We read of Psalms that were probably guessed to be songs that the Israelites learned as they marched their way to Jerusalem for the Passover every year. So these would be songs that would be corporate worship songs, basically. And this one, Psalm 130, specifically is a personal cry for mercy. A cry for God to hear them, and ultimately a reminder of God's mercy as they walked their way to complete Passover. And tonight I want to unpack the psalm in three different sections. So we're just going to kind of walk through it. How we're going to do that is we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, and then 4 through 6, 7 and 8. And my prayer is that as we walk, we'll walk away encouraged and filled with hope. Not based on anything that we have done, but rather based on God's good goodness and his mercy and forgiveness. Because even in the depths of our sorrow and sin, we have eternal hope in Jesus Christ. We can see this psalm as a pattern of for crying out for God in the midst of our lowest moments. Maybe tonight you feel like you are in that Puss in Boots moment. You are having your lowest moment. Or maybe you are feeling on a spiritual high. 
wherever you are, I want you to see that Psalm 130 is a template for true confession, for genuine confession. This model for confession, it reminds us to always keep our hearts stayed on God's character and his promises, those fulfilled and those we are waiting on as we repent of our sin and accept God's forgiveness. That's on the, on the screen because that's really what I want you to focus in on. If you remember Psalm 130 for any amount of the rest of your lives, I want you to see it as a template for genuine confession. How we're going to do that is I'm just going to walk through those different passages and explain how I think they help us to make genuine confession to the Lord. So first, verses 1 through 3. Confession starts with a cry for help and an acknowledgement of our sin. So if you look back at the text with me, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So back up in verse 1, we read the words, Out of the depths. The depths in the Old Testament, anytime you hear those words, I want you to think of this image. When Jonah pursues disobedience and is thrown into the sea, he is eaten up by a big whale, and that whale takes him into the depths of the ocean. And when he is there, he says that he is crying out from the depths. And when he's in that moment, I doubt he thinks that God can hear him. But this image is just an image of complete darkness, absolutely no light. I mean, think about it. You're inside of a whale, which means you're in complete darkness, and then you're in the darkest places of the earth. Have you ever experienced feeling that desolate, feeling that far from God? Have you reached the end of yourself? A moment where you could tangibly feel the weight of your sin. Now, this type of darkness, I don't, this isn't the same type of darkness if you've faced depression or loss or trial. This is a darkness that specifically comes when you have grappled with the reality of your sinfulness. If you've had a moment like this in your life, I pray that it's drawn you closer to Christ. I drawn, ultimately pray that it's drawn you to life in Christ. Because just like the psalmist here, those who have hope in God cry out to him in the darkness of our sin. So out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Some of you, if you are at the end of yourself in your sin, maybe you're crying out doubting that God desires to answer you or that he's going to answer you in a favorable way. But let me tell you this, God has never left us, even in our sin. Psalm 139 says this, If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. When the writer in Psalm 130 cries out to God, he knows that he will answer him. He knows that he will already grant him forgiveness. God hears us when we are at the end of ourselves ready to come to him in confession. See, God isn't like other people who can be fickle about their forgiveness. God is always going to extend forgiveness to you. When you cry out, he hears your confession. Maybe, though, when you cry out, you sound kind of like the end of this part of the psalm. God, if you counted every sin, how could I stand in your presence? When we have these moments of recognizing the weight of our sin, they should lead us to proclaim this. We should realize that we are unholy. 
The blessing of coming to the end of ourselves is the blessing of understanding that we cannot stand in God's grace on our own. We need Jesus. True confession can't start if we haven't come to this point of brokenness. If we don't start here, we haven't realized our need for God to hear us and forgive us. So, genuine confession, it starts with a cry for help. Next, once we've had that moment of genuine confession, genuine crying out to God, we need to remember God's promises. And that's where the psalmist moves us next. It says this, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Here in verse 4, we see what it looks like to confess with the knowledge of God's forgiveness. So as we cry out in confession, we now can cling to the remembrance of forgiveness. So in the beginning, in Genesis 3, God made it clear that forgiveness was going to be costly and that it deserved reverence. In the garden, to receive forgiveness, this required the slaying of an animal, the first animal sacrifice, and that is how Adam and Eve were able to come and stand before God. And in that, it required sacrifice on God's part. And the psalmist, he wants us to see that we can be confident in God's forgiveness and that this leads us to fear God. And what this means is that we are submitting to him and we honor him. Next, we move to verse 5, and it says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. I loved the way that the song put that earlier. And in the midst of our sorrow over our sin, we need to remember that, God, that we have hope in God's promise. So here in this passage, it says his word. And when it says his word, specifically in this passage, it's referring to the covenant God made with Abraham. The covenant I'm sure you guys have heard of multiple times before, where God said, I will be your God and they will be his people. That is the covenant that the Israelites would sing of as they were singing in, in, in this psalm. But for us, we have hope in a new covenant, a different covenant than the one that was before. We have hope in the covenant that came through the blood of Jesus. So in that word, we place our hope. Next, follow with me. We're going to verse 6. It says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. A watchman... It's a soldier or a guard or maybe even a shepherd who stands guard and watches at night. Pretty obvious based on their name. But this type of job, it probably would have been exhausting. Honestly, not a job I have any interest in taking. This would have required dedication, perseverance, and an awareness of the dangers of the night. I can imagine that this type of job would hold a lot of unknowns, but you know what they would always know was coming? The morning. The morning was always coming. There was always hope that the morning would come. Whatever time of day, they might not re even realize, okay, it's coming in an hour. But soon the sun would come over the horizon. They would sigh relief and realize we have hope. Once again, the morning has come. This phrase is used twice. And anytime we see repetition used in the Old Testament, just like it says, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. It also says, my soul waits, I wait for the Lord. That happens three times. Anytime we see these types of words repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we just need to add like a multiplication factor. 
This is just multiplying the drama of this phrase. And I think the repetition of the amount of times that they say this with this beautiful imagery of waiting for the morning helps us to see the deep longing that the psalmist has for the hope that is coming in Christ. He has a deeper longing, so much so that he wants to use his words to paint the picture so that we might understand even deeper. And so just like the psalmist, we wait for the Lord, reminding ourselves of the promise of God's forgiveness. That is what true confession leads us to. So when we cry out for help, we realize our sinfulness, we cling to God's promises, and ultimately, this model of confession, it leads us to remember that our true hope is in God's character. God's character gives us true hope. So follow with me. We just finished verse 6. We're moving to verse 7. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. So earlier in the passage, it was using words like I, talking about personal repentance. And now it's moving to this corporate idea where all of Israel is crying out with hope. Specifically, they're supposed to hope in two things, God's steadfast love and in his plentiful redemption. The hope that he's talking about here, this isn't the hope that we say, oh, I hope you get better or I hope to see you soon. No, this is a confident hope. This is a hope that they already know who God is. They are confident in his true character. The character that gives us true hope is these three things about God. Number one, his forgiveness, his steadfast love, and his plentiful redemption. Let's focus in on that word, steadfast love. This is one of the most important words in the whole Old Testament. It's this beautiful word. We can, um, it's sometimes used in other places as loving kindness or mercy. And this word in Hebrew for anyone who maybe likes the old languages um, is the word hesed. And this word is the word that God uses to describe his love. Only God has this type of love. Now, people might want to ascribe to having this type of love, but only God has this love. And this is actually the love that God revealed himself to have to Moses on Mount Sinai when he passed by and explained who he was. He was the one who steadfastly loves. Now, anytime the Israelites would have been told that they were supposed to remember that God is the one who steadfastly loves them, Throughout the Old Testament, God will continue to say, remember what I've done. Remember what I've done. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. What has he done? He took them out of Egypt. He's taking them back, telling them, look at the Exodus. Look what I've promised you. Every time, that's how God wants us to see. He is the God who has delivered. He is the God who has redeemed. In our moments of true confession, we need to cling to God's character to be filled with true hope. Because only through God's redeeming work do we have true forgiveness. So the Israelites, when they're thinking about God's character, they look back to the Exodus and they say, we see that you've done it. Now, are they faithful in that in any way? If you've read the Old Testament, what's your answer? No. No, they keep forgetting over and over again. They're just like us. They need a reminder. And they had that reminder. They had God's promises. They had the sacrificial system. But ultimately, they were looking for a future hope. And let's read verse 8. It says, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. 
Now these final words, they are the words that explain the Israelites' posture when they were in a, a good place. I mean, we all have our highs and lows in our faith. And when the Israelites were in their highest of highs, they were clinging to the true hope that they knew that what? A Messiah was coming. Someone was coming to fulfill this verse. They had a future redemption. So this model of confession found in Psalm 130, it ultimately ends in the waiting for a Messiah, the one who would fully and finally forgive Israel of all his iniquities. But unlike the author of the psalm, or unlike the Israelites walking their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, we are no longer waiting for a Redeemer to come and save us of all our iniquities. So while psalm, this psalm models for us true con- confession, it also leads us to a deeper understanding of God's faithfulness to bring redemption to his people. How? Let's look at Luke 5 with me. Put it up on the screens. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So I jumped us up to a passage in Luke, one of the first passages where we see Jesus doing his ministry. He's out, he's teaching, and he's healing. And what does he do when he does that? He forgives sin. Now, if Jesus wanted to be subtle about his deity, about his godness, he probably should have chosen some different words or gone a different direction because those of the scribes and the Pharisees that are overhearing Jesus say this to someone, guess what pops into their head? Psalm 130. They think, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. They knew that God was the only one who was able to forgive sin. So who is this man claiming that they are able to forgive sin? Now we on this side of Christ, we get to look back at the psalm and see that ultimately Jesus is the one who fulfilled that. To me, that is one of the most important parts about reading the Old Testament is seeing how Jesus has fulfilled time and time again the prophecies, the psalms. Jesus clearly is the one that all of this was pointing to. And we get the blessing of seeing that. We didn't have to live before Jesus came. So we get to see that he is the redeemer for Israel of all his iniquities. And Israel is no longer a nation. It is now the church, aka we have been redeemed of all of our iniquities. That is what this passage is saying. In Jesus' ministry, um, he, forga- he forgave sin of those who were physically sick before he healed their bodies to demonstrate the importance of spiritual, aka eternal healing, over the physical, earthly healing. And in, in these moments, when Jesus was offering forgiveness, when he was saying to them, your sins are forgiven you, this is the same type of forgiveness that they were walking themselves to in Jerusalem to offer up sacrifices at the temple. 
But now there's this man who is saying to them, your sins are forgiven you. Not only God could be doing that. The reason that Psalm 130 is full of future hope is because God is the one who has been working since day one of creation to redeem his people. He not only established this system of sacrificial offerings to bring, for, to bring forgiveness in the end, but he is also the one who abolished it. As I've been thinking about this, I just have been kind of trying to picture this idea of the God who created the world, the one who put in the sacrificial system in the beginning, is also the one who fulfills it in the end. That is just a really powerful image to me of who God is. And he did that by abolishing the power of sin and death of the work on the cross. In forgiving sins, Jesus declares himself to be God, since only God can grant forgiveness of sins. So Jesus lives out his life. We're walking into Easter in the next couple weeks. Brian's going to be with you in two weeks to talk about the cross. But Jesus lives out his life. He's ministering, and he makes it to the cross. At the cross, all our sin, past, present, and future, was forgiven. The psalm that we've been talking about, it ends with the phrase, and he will redeem Israel of all his iniquities. Now, can you imagine what kind of sacrifice the Israelites thought this might take? I mean, they read the passages throughout the Old Testament. They had heard of tens of thousands of bulls being brought to Jerusalem and slaughtered. To me, those images are just absolutely terrifying and gory. Thinking about, I, don't, I won't go there, but just imagining the blood running out of Jerusalem. There's no way they pictured a man from Galilee hanging on a Roman cross to be the end and final sacrifice. But he is the one that they had been waiting for. They had been thinking some type of Messiah would come. And here is this man from Galilee claiming to forgive sin. At the cross, Jesus fully satisfied the penalty we were due because of our sin. There's a big theological word that describes this. It is called penal substitution. Woo, really fun phrase. Um, so I'm used to preaching to like sixth grade through 12th grade, and so I got to like bring out some big words, and it's really fun, so Thanks for indulging me. This word, penal substitution, is one of the atonement theories, which basically is an explanation of what happened on the cross and what it means for us. So atonement theory is what happened on the cross, what it means for us. One of the theories of atonement, the one that we believe in, is penal substitution. And that means that Jesus took our place. He took your place took the full wrath of God that you deserved, that I deserved, and that happened on the cross. The sacrifice that we all needed has been completed, and this is true for anyone who puts their faith in God. This is how he redeems Israel of all his iniquities. So when Jesus died, we know three days later he rose again. And when he rose again, he defeated the power of sin and death. And when he ascended into heaven, he promised he would return and make all things new. So when we confess our sin to Jesus, we have a promise that we're not only receiving redemption now, but we will also receive full redemption. 
The difference between the promise that we're living in now, the redemption that we're living in now, is the reality of sin. Sin is still in our lives. And one day when Jesus comes back, he will remove the presence of sin. We still live in a world where sin is among us. And that's why we need Psalm 130. God the Father sees us as Christ, but we still have sin, and therefore we need something to help us to turn our eyes to God, to turn our hearts to him, and to have to ask him to make uh, him to make us more like him. Clinging on to the hope that one day he will come again. So, Psalm 130. I just took us on a pretty deep dive into some theological words. Thank you for indulging me. It really has been super fun to get to talk to y'all. Um, because honestly, sometimes it's just hard to talk to sixth graders. So why, why do I share all of this? What really matters about this? Why did we look through Psalm 130 and why are we talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of it? Number one, because it is the only real hope we have. It's the only real hope we have. At the end of the day, when we hit our lowest, when we are like Puss in Boots, or we are like Jonah in the deeps, in the depths, and the darkest moments, we have a choice to make. We can agonize in our sin, or we can turn to Jesus. When you're in your lowest moments, you can agonize in your sin, or you can turn to Jesus. Number two, why else do I tell you this? I tell you it because it should bring you true joy that even during while you're sorrowing over your sin should bring you joy to realize that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. While I was prepping for this lesson over the last couple days, I was meeting with one of my discipleship groups on Thursday afternoons, and it's a group of, there were three girls there this afternoon, and it's some juniors and seniors in our ministry. And honestly, these girls could do theological laps around me. I mean, they're really smart. Um, and so I asked them, hey, let's look at Psalm 130. Let's dig through this. Tell me where you think this will take you in the New Testament. One of them is absolutely obsessed with Romans 8 right now, so she brings me there all the time. So we went to Romans 8. And as they were saying this, one of them said this line that I just had to share with y'all. This is what she said. We should experience joy in the midst of our confession because we know even when we feel bad about our sin, we aren't condemned, just convicted, and we've already been forgiven. I'll read it again. It says, we should experience joy in the midst of our confession because we know even when we feel bad about our sin, we aren't condemned, we're just convicted, and we've already been forgiven. When I read over the words of Psalm 130, knowing that, A, Jesus hears, he hears my cry. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. And he has revealed God's character fully. I am in awe of God's word. Not only were these words a cry for the Israelites as they walked themselves to Jerusalem for Passover, but they are also the words that I can use when I am at my lowest and I need to cry out to Jesus and remind myself that I'm, well, when I'm in those moments of, not, of understanding that I am not worthy of God. I can make this my cry. And the more I make Psalm 130 my cry, the more I believe in his promises, the more I remember his character. And when I do those things, guess what? It breeds more confession. 
because I'm realizing that I'm more regularly a sinner. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for Psalm 130 to become the cry of our heart so that we might come to Jesus more and more and more. So before we enter into a time of reflection, I just want to share maybe one way that this has actually been true in my own life. I struggle with some pretty intrusive thoughts sometimes. I know many of y'all in the room probably do too. And sometimes I just can really become a victim to those lies. Believing over and over again the things either that Satan's telling me, that the world's telling me, or just that I'm living in. And I need Psalm 130 to remind me that when I'm at my lowest, I can turn to Jesus. I can trust in him. I can bring even what I feel like is despised and despicable to the cross, and he has forgiven me. I don't have to carry around the shame of those thoughts, of the way that I feel about myself. I can turn to Jesus. I pray that you can do that too. I pray that you'll go home and take Psalm 130 and be able to sit in your room and cry out to God. Maybe you're not in that moment right now, but maybe in three weeks. When it, we're getting closer to finals, and you're feeling a little bit more stressed, and you're realizing that you're really mean to your roommate, maybe then this can be a really great cry out to the Lord. So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to enter into a time of reflection, the 120 time, where you will think about what is God saying to me? What am I going to do about it? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that we are broken. We confess to you that we don't deserve to stand in your presence. We confess to you that we feel so unworthy of your love. But God, we cling to the hope that this psalm reminds us of, reminding us that um, in you there is full forgiveness. And our, soul, our souls wait for that. We wait um, for the day that we get to see you again. We wait for the day that we don't have to experience the presence of sin anymore. But until then, God, we pray that you would help us to just fix our eyes more on you, fix our eyes on your character, on your promises, on who you are, on the gospel, on the cross. God, I pray for these students, that you would stir in them a lives of deeper devotion to you, and that your word would just grow fruit in their lives, that they would fall more and more in love with you every day. And that would breed true confession. That would breed a desire to know you more. God, we pray for any of the students in this room who are far from you and have no interest in turning to you. Lord, would you turn their hearts to you? Would you do that tonight? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.